Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. And I know, as usual, that you will find it exceedingly helpful to have your own copies of Scripture open, reading along with me. I I know I say that every week, um, but I think especially this week you'll want to have your Bibles open as we plunge into some of the deepest theology that the Apostle Paul gives us. There's no way around that, and, you know, we rejoice in the fact that God gives us deep theology to meditate on and believe, but you'll find it helpful to have your Bibles open reading along with me. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And as usual, would you go with me to the Lord in prayer, praying with me for his blessing. Let's pray. Father, we look to you in faith. We lift up our prayers to you. We pray that they would ascend to you as incense ascending into your holy temple, that you would hear our prayers for the aid of your Holy Spirit to help us to grant us that inner illumination. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would come, that you would come as a mighty rushing wind, that you would blow through this place, that you would soften hearts, that you would open eyes, that you would remove distractions, sin, um, burdens, that we may be bearing this morning. We pray that you, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, would speak powerfully to us. We pray that you would give us grace to receive your word, to search it, to see if these things are so, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, give us wisdom and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul has been contrasting the law and the gospel, and he's told us last week that the law demanded perfect obedience and that if someone was to be justified by the law, they would have to keep it perfectly. And this week, this is what the Apostle writes. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. Maybe your Bible says seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring or and to your seed who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could have given life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you remember back in 2006, the great controversy that surrounded the godfather of soul, James Brown, um, after Brown had passed away, native of Augusta, Georgia, in Aiken, South Carolina. When he had passed away, um, 
there was a controversy over his last will and testimony. Brown had been married three times, three different women's from, women from 1953 to 1996. He had six children by those women, and each of those children were put in that will as the rightful heirs of the Brown estate. Brown had made, at one point in time, $80 million one year. This man had an exceedingly great inheritance for his children, and all of it was bequeathed to his six children. And it was entrusted to them, and it was very clear in the will who Brown wanted that money to go to. The problem was Brown had entrusted his will and testament to uh, some financial advisors who did some perhaps um, unnecessary things to ensure that that money would go to charitable funds. There was some question whether they were trying to illegitimately get the inheritance for themselves. And there was another problem. Brown had sort of married another woman, I believe in 1997. I'm sorry, in 2001 he had married another woman um, named Tammy May, and he had had a child with her. And so then there began to be a war ensuing over why they were left out of the testimony, why James Brown Jr., James Brown II, was left out of the testimony, why he would not get any, and why the six children would. I think it's helpful because we understand legal wills and testaments. We understand that idea. If, if we promise something to our children, that is binding. Legally, that will go to who we have promised it to. It goes to the ones that it is meant for. And the Apostle Paul here in Galatians 3 is using that exact example to explain how the blessings of the gospel come to Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ through the promises given to Abraham. Paul will say, notice verse 15, he says to give a human example. I Imagine if Paul was writing Galatians today and it was called the Epistle to Georgia, he would use James Brown as an example. He would say, listen, to give a human example, remember James Brown. If somebody writes a will, a testimony, even a human one, it is, and it's ratified, it is binding. Nobody can change it. Nobody can add to it. It's very difficult to change a human will and testament. And what Paul is saying is that in a greater way, no one can change the fact that God promised Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of everything. God is saying, look, the promises made that by faith, Jew and Gentile would be justified by faith alone in the promises of God and the Christ of God, they were given to Abraham. They were ratified. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, after God had said, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing, I will give you land, I will give you people, I will make your name great, I will make your descendants more than the stars of the sky, more than the sand on the sea. He then did something with Abraham where he took him out at night and he made him cut all these animals apart and put them on both sides. And in the cutting of the covenant, the covenant was confirmed. And in the ancient Near East, you know this, I think some of you, that when a covenant was made and it was cut and the animals were put on either side, the two parties would walk between that covenant. They would walk between there and they would say, if I break my part of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. This is Genesis 15. Abraham cuts the animals, puts them on both sides, and God and God pass through. Not God and Abraham. The Lord passes through those animals, smoking oven, a flaming torch. He goes through those animals, and God essentially says that this covenant is broken. May what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, we know that does happen to, to God in Jesus at the cross. He is cut apart. The covenant that we break, he is cut apart. 
Because God has promised. He has sworn. His promises are sure and steadfast. They were given to Abraham. We add nothing to it. We take nothing from it. The promises that God makes to Abraham and to you here today, that's why Abraham is so important to us, the promises he makes to Abraham and to you and to me are certain. They are more sure than a human will or testimony. That's the most sure thing we know legally. God's promises are sure. And so we're going to see two things this morning as we come to look at this, the relationship between the promise and the law, uh, Abraham and Moses, those two covenantal administrations. We're going to see two things. First, we're going to see the nature of promise, and then we're going to see the purpose of the law, the nature of promise and the purpose of the law. Now, Paul in Galatians 3 has introduced the idea of promise and blessing. And he said that whoever has faith in Jesus is blessed with Abraham. You know, I think sometimes we hurt ourselves. We've reduced Abraham down to a children's song. Father Abraham has many sons and I'm one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And the Bible instead holds Abraham out as the most significant individual in Old Testament history for your faith. Abraham is the most important person in the Old Testament because Abraham is given all the promises of God and Abraham is told that everyone who believes like Abraham did will be seeds of Abraham, will be offspring, children of Abraham and heirs of those same promises. Everything that God said to Abraham, he says to us. Now the question is, what are those promises? Well, notice in verse 9 of chapter 3. Let's go back actually chapter eight, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Notice what Paul says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. We are Gentiles, we're not Jews. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham had the gospel. That's what Paul says. Abraham had the gospel. When God came to Abraham and he said to him, verse 8, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In your seed shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. God was saying to Abraham, one day, Abraham, all the people across the face of the earth, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, a people out of every different cultural background, every different ethnic, every different background, they are all going to be blessed in your seed, who is Christ. And they're going to be justified. They're going to be accepted by faith alone that God would justify the Gentiles, the blessing, the promise that God gave to Abraham was justification, that you will be righteous before me, that I will see you, though so full of sin in yourself, as perfectly righteous by faith, by believing a promise, by believing the one to whom the promise was given. And so notice the first blessing is justification in verse 8. And then notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So not only do you get justification, not only by faith do you get the blessing of Abraham, the promise of justification, but you also get the spirit of God. You get indwelt by God himself. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead comes, indwells your heart, regenerates you. You now live life in the spirit. You are controlled by God. You are possessed by God. Literally, everybody's possessed by something. You, if you're a believer, are possessed by the spirit of God. He controls us and lives in us. We possess him. We are sealed with him for the day of redemption. He is the guarantee of 
our inheritance. So you get justification, you get the Holy Spirit, and then Paul says you get the inheritance. Now notice, notice what he says about the inheritance at the end of this section. In the chapter that we're looking at, notice what he says. He says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. God had promised Abraham land. He had said that your descendants, your seed is going to inherit the promised land. That's why it's called the promised land. The third part of the promise is the land. Justification, you get righteousness, you get the spirit, and you get an inheritance. But the beautiful thing is in the New Testament, it's not the land of Israel. It's not about Israel. It's not about the land of Israel. Paul in Romans 4 says Abraham would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the meek shall inherit the land of Israel. No, he doesn't say that. He says the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek essentially shall become heir of the world. That God is giving everything to his people and he does it by promise. He promised Abraham he would be heir of everything and that his seed would be heir of everything. So the promises this morning, justification, the reception of the spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, and you become heir of everything. The new heavens, the new earth, the world, all that's in it, all by faith in Jesus Christ. And so secondly, the substance of the promise is affirmed to the recipients of the promise. Now notice with me, as we look at the promise this morning, that Paul now really digs in theologically. This is a difficult portion of scripture. Paul gives us some very deep theology. And notice what he says in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. If you went back to the Genesis account, in Hebrew, the word Zerah, seed, would resurface, and God was constantly saying, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. I will give you a seed, an offspring. I will raise up to you an offspring. And in Genesis, that seed is Isaac. That seed is Isaac in Genesis. And yet Paul says that, that the seed is Christ. Notice the end of verse 16. He says, it does not refer to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, this is where it gets challenging and you have to listen carefully. The word zerah, seed in Hebrew, carries a collective note. Um, the offspring, collective, more than one. It carries with it that idea. Paul says it doesn't carry that idea. He says that the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed singular, who is Christ. All the promises that God makes in the Bible, the Father makes to the Son through the ones that he gives those promises to. Now, if that's confusing to you, let me try to break this down for you. Every promise that you read in the Bible, God the Father made to God the Son for you. Every promise. And Jesus comes and he says yes to all the promises of God. He says, yes, I will do what you say, Father, that I may receive those promises and those blessings to give them to my people. Jesus says, yes, my Father, I will go through baptism I will, I will take all of the steps that you require for those blessings to be secured, those promised blessings. And Paul is telling us that. He's saying, listen, the whole Old Testament was written to Jesus. It's a simple way to put it. Most Christians have never heard that. The whole Old Testament is written to Jesus. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God comes, and what you read in the Bible, all the promises that you think are first and foremost to you, Paul says, no, they're first and foremost to him. 
They're first and foremost to Jesus Christ. He comes. He reads the Bible. He wrote the Bible, but he reads the Bible as a boy. He learns of those promises. He sees what the Father requires. He goes through every step to acquire those blessings and to give them to you by faith in him. And all you have to do is believe in him. And so Christ receiving all the blessings of Abraham, Christ being the true seed of Abraham and fulfilling the covenant with Abraham, he receives to himself all of the right to give it to those who are united to him by faith. So that if you have faith in Jesus, if you, if you today are united by faith to Jesus Christ, you get every blessing and you don't do anything for it. Just like James Brown's six children didn't do anything for that inheritance. Their father bequeathed it to them. He gave it to them. So God the Father gives to his son all the covenant blessings. And his son gives them to us by faith in him. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. There's an account in the New Testament. A rich man comes to Jesus, a rich young ruler. The three Gospels tell you he was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in the question is this ironic fact You don't do anything to get an inheritance. James Brown's children didn't do anything to get the inheritance. They were his children. You don't do anything. That man was self-righteous. He was trying by the law, by his own works, to gain the inheritance of God. And what Paul says is if the inheritance comes through the law, through your own works, through what you do and the law of Moses, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God never said to Abraham, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you're good enough, if you work hard enough. And in fact, Paul's going to say, and this is the beautiful thing, the law wasn't even given until four centuries after God promised Abraham everything in the gospel. The law wasn't even around. Moses wasn't even alive. Four centuries later, God gives the law at Sinai and the promise stands firm and that giving of the law after the fact does nothing does nothing to change the fact that it's entirely by promise that God has said I will do this and all that God requires of you is to believe now Tim Keller gives a great illustration he says if I had a uh, um, an envelope up here and I put a thousand dollars in it and I said to you there's a thousand dollars in that envelope and all you have to do is believe me and come up here and take it and it's yours But if you don't believe me, you're not going to come up here and you won't get it. And you may say, well, I don't think there's a thousand dollars in there. So you won't come up and you won't get it. Now, that's a human illustration like James Brown, but it's helpful. God has said, I would do this. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I will justify you. I will give you an inheritance. I will, I will, I will, I will. And he says, believe me, believe me, look to my son who received those blessings, and believe me, look to my son, who is the guarantee. The covenant is confirmed in Jesus. When we look in the New Testament at Jesus, and he's come, God has come in the flesh, and we look at Jesus, we see the covenant keeper. We see the one who said, come to me, believe in me, trust in me, rest in me. I'll give you all things. I'll make you heir of everything, and all you have to do is believe. That's all you have to do, is believe that I am who I say I am, and that I did what I said I came to do at the cross. 
for undeserving people like us. And so Paul wants to make it clear that the law can't make void the promises. And so then the question, secondly, we move from the nature of the promise to the purpose of the law. The question then is, why, why the law? What's the purpose of the law? If you can't work for God's favor, if you can't get the inheritance by being a good enough person, why did God give the law in covenantal history? Why 430 years later? Notice what Paul says in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. And so the question is, if, if you're not justified by the law, what purpose, what good is the law? I, I like to think of uh, the illustration of a knife. Um, a knife in itself is not a bad thing. Um, there's some ladies in this church that can take a knife and make a mean meal for us. Um, But if I take that knife and I try to shave every day with a big, fat kitchen knife, I'm probably going to cut my throat at some point. The purpose of that knife is not to shave with. The purpose of that knife may be to defend people with. It may be to make a meal with. But the purpose of the knife is not to cut my own throat with. The law functions that way. The law is good. The law has a purpose. The law was intended by God to do something. But it was never intended for us to justify ourselves before God by obeying it. And so Paul is going to say, notice, the first thing you need to know is the time difference. It was given 430 years after the promise, so it certainly can't play into the reception of the promise. And then notice what Paul says in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. You see, when God gave the law at Sinai, what he wanted Israel to see was that they needed a savior. The law was meant to drive them back to the promises he made to Abraham and forward to Jesus. It was meant to say, you're not a good person. You're not a good person. I'm holy. You're not. You deserve wrath. The law came with thunderings and lightnings and terror. The law does not come as a friendly thing saying, here, just work a little harder. Try a little better. The law comes with all the demand of perfection. And it comes and God intended it to drive you into the arms of Jesus. That the law, instead of whipping yourself with it, was to be a whip that drove you to Jesus. Now, we may not think of that as a good thing, but if it drives you to Jesus, by the Spirit of God, it is a good thing. If it ends up driving you into the arms of the Savior, it's accomplished its purpose. It served the purpose for which God gave it. So he said, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. That's Christ, to whom the promise had been made. Now, Paul's going to use a series of other little arguments to explain how the covenant with Abraham was, in a sense, uh, more significant than the covenant with Moses. I have to be careful there. Because the covenant with Moses and the law was given through the mediation of angels and Moses. So God gave it through angels and then through Moses, but the promises he gave directly to Abraham. And in the gospel, you may say, well, don't we have a mediator? Well, yeah, we have a mediator. It's Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's God. And so God mediates for himself in the gospel. And the gospel doesn't begin in the New Testament. The gospel begins in Genesis with Abraham. That's the point. The gospel begins before the law. In a sense, the Bible is gospel, law, gospel. Because Paul's going to say the gospel was preached to Abraham, verse 8 before saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed, and Christ is going to come, and the law is going to serve its purpose, and the Mosaic system is going to serve its purpose. I told you, there was a lot of theology here. Now, let me just show you how we close this out. Look at verse 21 and 22. 
if if God's law only served the purpose of driving us to Jesus because of our transgressions to show us that we're not good people, if that's the only reason God gave his law, then the question Paul's anticipating, look at verse 21, he says, then is the law contrary to the promises of God? Why would God give it? If it doesn't, if it doesn't, if it's not the promises and you don't get righteousness by what you do, and it's only because we're not good people that God gave his law, is that contrary? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, certainly not. Now, let me just show you in verse 22 what he's gonna, how he's going to answer this. Notice verse 22. He says, but the scripture, and you could insert law there for the word scripture, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3.22 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Because what it says, it answers the question of why is there sin in this world? Why did God create a world in which Adam would fall, in which you and I would be sinners. Why would God allow evil? Paul's actually answering all those questions in this verse. The great question that everybody wants to know, why would, why would a good God do that? Why would a good God allow evil and sin and fallenness and misery and pain? And Why would God allow that? Paul says, listen, the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if there was no sin, there would be no need for a Savior. If there was no sin... We didn't live in a fallen world. We wouldn't need any promise of moving on to something better through faith in Jesus. God has so ordered everything, the gospel and the law working together to show us our need of a Savior, to show us his plan of redemption, to show us that by faith in him, to show us that by faith in him, God is glorified. We are saved. We receive promises. We see how loving God is. We see how wise God is. And here's the thing, and I'm going to close with this. If you are trying to justify yourself by what you do, in any sense whatsoever, you are missing the point of the Bible. If you read the demands of God, do this and live, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, and you say, you know, I'm not like those people over there. You're missing the point of the Bible because the Bible says everybody's confined under sin. That's the point of the Bible. The Bible was written to confine everybody under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So, if you have seen that you're a sinner and you're trusting in Jesus, you can have peace, that you are heir of everything. You know, I think one of the most beautiful things in the Bible, and I'll take it back to the James Brown thing here, I don't actually know what happened. Maybe one of you can fill me in on what happened with James Brown and the inheritance. I looked online trying to find out. Um, I assume his children got a large inheritance. Um, The point of the Bible is not just to confine you under sin, but is to lead you to Jesus and then to assure your hearts that you are heirs of all things in him by faith. And Paul is writing this theological treatise to say, listen, if you've trusted on Jesus, don't be moved away from him. The legalists in Galatia were trying to get them to add to Jesus just a little bit. And he's saying, no, the will has been drafted. The covenant has been ratified. The promises have been secured. Look, When we walk in unbelief, we're not believing the promises of God. Think about how good God is. God says, I want you to believe me, and I don't want you to just believe 
that I, I tell you I'm a holy God. I don't want you to just believe all those things that are true about me. I want you to believe that I have said I want everything for you laid up in heaven in an eternal inheritance for you. I want you to believe that I am holding all that out to you in my son. Now think about the love and the greatness and the goodness. God wants you to believe the promises. He wants you to believe his promises. Um, I watched a movie called Born Rich years ago. It was a documentary about all these heirs to famous inheritances. Um, the Johnson & Johnson heir, uh, several other very famous heirs, I think the Trump daughter. Um, and it was interesting, there were several where the kids said, I can't mess up because if I mess up, I'll lose the inheritance. It was remarkable. It actually is a worthwhile documentary to watch. The kids were so afraid. If my dad finds out I'm partying in the Hamptons too much, if I, if I end up doing this too much, if I get caught doing this, if I get caught doing drugs, I'll lose the inheritance, and so I have to pretend like I'm good enough. And see, that's, that's the fallen mindset with regard to the law and self-justification. And God says, you, you're not good enough, but I want to give you everything. I want to give you everything. Listen. That's true. That's true. God says, I want to give you everything. And all I ask is that you believe in my son who has received all those blessings in his death and resurrection. So we go from here. I want you guys to meditate on those things, to meditate on the fact that the promises of God are what he wants us to be resting in and believing as they are fulfilled in the one to whom those promises were made, Jesus, the seed. We become Seeds of Abraham, offspring of Abraham by faith in him, but he is the seed. He receives the promises. He fulfills all things. He keeps the law. He takes the curse of the law. And he gives us everything, an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Do you believe that? I'm going to leave you with that question. Do you believe that? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us about your exceedingly great and precious promises. We are slow to believe, Lord, and we are quick to try to justify ourselves. And we ask you to forgive us, uh, cause us to cast ourselves on Jesus Christ, the promise keeper, the covenant keeper. Father in heaven, give us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Satisfy our souls with him, who though he knew no sin was made sin for us that we might receive every blessing, righteousness, and the Spirit and the inheritance in Him. Father, send us out with your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.